0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and curious folk to the PM&R Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern Medical School and TIRR Memorial Herman, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. Hello everyone and welcome to another session of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we'll be discussing a novel concept, the concept of actually getting critically ill patients out of bed and exercising, doing physical medicine and rehabilitation techniques while they're still in the intensive care unit. Um, to discuss this novel idea, we've brought in our distinguished lecturer, Dr. Dale Needham. Dr. Dale Needham is currently the medical director of the Critical Care and Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation Program at Johns Hopkins University. He holds a professorship with the Department of Internal Medicine, Critical Care Subdivision, as well as with the department of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Johns Hopkins University and he is the head of the OACIS which is the Outcomes After Critical Illness and Surgery Group Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. So without further ado I'd like to turn the floor over to Dr. Needham to introduce himself. Thank you and welcome Dr. Needham.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, very nice to have a chance to to speak with you and and you're correct. Uh, I practice as an ICU doctor, but I also have an appointment in physical medicine rehabilitation. And really, all of my research is aimed at trying to help improve the long-term physical, cognitive, and psychological outcomes of ICU survivors.
0: Okay, excellent, excellent. I do have a particular question, then, since we're talking about your background. Um, what what kind of sparked your interest in the rehabilitation side of things? I, and I ask that because your prior training is, in, is as an internist and then in critical care medicine for fellowship training. Um, and then you got interested in the, the rehab side of things. So what, was there a kind of a, an epiphanic moment, if that's
1: even a word, that kind of sparked your curiosity in rehab? So, so when I originally arrived at Johns Hopkins, uh, my division of pulmonary and critical care medicine had received a large grant from uh, the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and one of the projects within that large grant was a prospective longitudinal cohort study, the ICAP study, that was aiming to characterize the physical and psychological outcomes after acute respiratory distress syndrome or serious, serious breathing problems that causes the patient to need life support in an intensive care unit. And through that project that I worked on and actually ended up leading, I saw firsthand as we enrolled patients and followed them up at three months, six months, 12 months, and then two, three, four, and five years, I saw myself the major physical and psychological implications of having survived critical illness. And as part of that that research study, we also decided in the very early stages that we'd begin to collect basic things like patients' exposure to occupational and physical therapy while they're in the intensive care unit and while they're in the ICU. And we found that across 13 ICUs at four hospitals in Baltimore, that really these very sick patients with long ICU stays rarely got occupational or physical therapy interventions. And then we also saw that they had these very poor physical outcomes. So we tried to put one and one together and said, well, maybe we need to be thinking about shifting that rehabilitation much further upstream into the ICU environment rather than waiting until these impairments had occurred and then try to fix them later. So that was really what got me onto to this as being part of that uh, that original study.
0: Okay. So you mentioned kind of shifting paradigms or shifting the way that we, you know, we think about these things. Um, do you think that they're is this, is this maybe embedded idea that it's kind of dangerous and that we shouldn't be mobilizing patients who are in the ICU or that you know it's too soon or there's bigger fish to fry right now? Let's deal with that later. Is is that what you believe is currently the paradigm in within uh, critical care medicine?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that that this whole idea of getting patients awake and moving is like telling many intensive care doctors and nurses that the earth is flat it's completely different than how all of us or many of us were trained we were trained that we need to focus on the heart the lungs and the kidneys and life support interventions to do those in critical care we often talk about taking control of the patient and the easiest way to take control of the patient and take over their breathing and with machines and things, is for the patients to be sedated and for them to not have any sort of involvement. And I think many ICU nurses, when they trained, also believed that the perfect ICU patient was deeply sedated, absolutely motionless, with a white flat sheet over their body, looking, you know, perfectly flat and and, and very sterile looking, rather than a patient that's on life support and kind of moving around in bed and, and kind of awake and kind of not awake That's a much less controlled situation sure. often for ICU doctors and nurses who are used to controlling things and taking over things So it is a very big paradigm shift for many modern ICUs but I do want to note that when ICUs were first created Deep sedation wasn't common in many ICUs. When ICUs were first created, patients often were awake and moving, but then I think as patients got sicker and sicker, and as sedative drugs became available, because when ICUs were first created, intravenous benzodiazepine sedative drugs did not exist. Propofol, another sedative drug, did not exist. So the combination of patients getting sicker and more stressed healthcare systems and access to sedation, I think uh, changed practice, moved the pendulum to have deeper sedation. I also think that we've inappropriately borrowed from the anesthesiology or the operating room environment, where we think about the patient goes to the operating room, somebody opens their abdomen and You know, it's very good that they're deeply sedated, they've got no memory of the surgery, they've got no pain during the surgery, and I think we inappropriately borrow from that literature to think that a patient's intensive care unit stay should be the same way. And that we think that deep sedation's helping patients when in fact it's absolutely not helping most patients in the intensive care unit. It's making them immobilized because they're too sedated to move. It causes them to have delirium often frightening delusions and hallucinations that are often linked to these sedative medications and a much better approach to care even though patients are very sick and it's a scary environment is to have them awake and understand what's going on with empathetic people around them including clinicians and family and friends to help them through this experience and that's sort of the more modern approach to care
0: okay okay that's interesting so So you think that perhaps as we've gained more tools in medicine, we've to a certain extent used too many tools or used them somewhat inappropriately?
1: I I think that that in our desire to control the function of every organ in the body and to to replace it with, with machines, we often have not allowed the patient to participate in their own recovery in the same way. And having patients awake and participating in physical rehabilitation is probably the only way that a patient recognizes that they're participating in their own recovery and can understand their recovery. You do not need to have a university degree to be an ICU patient and recognize, yesterday you walked two steps and today you've walked four steps and that's better. And then patients automatically begin to set goals and say, okay, tomorrow I want to do this. So um, I think it really is an important change in the approach to care. It also, as you can can imagine, it humanizes the intensive care unit environment, which is a dramatic change to to the practice in many ICUs.
0: Like you were saying, so dramatic changes in not that patient who's immobile, perfectly sedated with beautiful looking vitals. But necessarily, you know, the vitals can kind of fluctuate a little bit. They're awake. They're actually participating. You think they're making more progress that way.
1: I I think so, because clearly the use of deep sedation slows our ability to stop life support therapy. I'll give you examples. Back when I trained in critical care, deep sedation was commonly used. And let's say somebody came in with a serious pneumonia and they needed a life support machine to to support them through the, the healing from the pneumonia. Often they would get deep sedation, and then we would see that their lungs had recovered and healed, and we'd be ready to separate them from the breathing machine. But then we found that they were too sedated, and we couldn't separate them because they were in a coma. And we would stop the sedation medication, we'd do a CAT scan of their head, we'd do an EEG, we'd say, why aren't they waking up, the tests would come back without any new abnormality we'd wait two or three days for those drugs to flush out of their system they'd then be awake and then we would remove the breathing tube okay you know so that sedation slowed down the process of recovery slowed down the patient getting off the the life support machines and uh and that really is how we often practiced in the bad old days
0: so you mentioned something very interesting to me where you were saying that it wasn't always like this that before you know the, these new tools or deep sedation became commonplace, um, we didn't practice medicine this way. That patients were mobilized a little bit more aggressively, perhaps. Am, am I right in saying that?
1: Yes, well, I think what you're referring to is intensive care units in the United States have only been around somewhere between forty to. 50 or 60 years, depending what what part of the country we're in. So they're a relatively new phenomenon, and they did predate the existence of these these, uh, current sedative medications that we use. And there is historical evidence that in the early days, in many ICUs, patients were awake, alert, out of bed, ambulating, and this was normal care in many ICUs, but then the, the pendulum swung and deep sedation uh, ended up being used more regularly and different approaches to care happened. But but you're right that in the early days, m- many patients were awake and moving despite being on life support machines.
0: Okay, so this is almost like we're we're taking an old idea and we're reinventing it today and applying it. Now that we have all these new tools as well, there's nothing wrong with the tools. It's really just the implementation and the way that that we need to practice
1: medicine. I, I agree. What I often say is that early rehabilitation in the ICU is moving back to the future. OK,
0: OK. Um, Dr. Needham, you I, I had the advantage of sitting through, um, through your Grand Rounds lecture earlier today, um, but you mentioned several projects that you're involved in. A few of the projects, you were looking at bringing in equipment into the ICU, along with therapists that are trained in the use of this equipment. Um, different kind of interventions. One of one of which you mentioned was using bedside cycle ergometers and uh, amino acids. Is this this is a current project you have going on right now?
1: Yeah. So we have a, a few projects as you've alluded to. We've done some early pilot work with neuromuscular electrical stimulation, or the use of of pads laying on top of muscles with gentle electrical stimulation to cause muscle contraction. We've also done work with a uh, type of cycling device that sits on the end of the bed. The patient lays in the bed, so the patient doesn't need to get out of bed and sit like on a, a cycle at the gym.
0: Or transfer, or go through the whole nine yards of moving them out of you know their, where the nurse thinks that the patient is stable and safe.
1: That that's right. So then then uh, the person at the bedside would put the patient's legs into this device and. Uh, with a cycle and if the patient was deeply sedated or brain injured, then there's a motor on this device and it would move the patient's legs. But what we find is even those patients sometimes wake up and may have short bursts of actually participating in the cycling. And then other patients that are wider awake, it's just like going to the gym in that they're participating in cycling and we can increase the resistance over time so that they're working, working harder. And then... Um, so we've done work with all of those things. And now in collaboration with a physical therapists in Australia, we're finishing a randomized control trial that combines electrical stimulation with this in-bed cycling. And we're evaluating whether that may improve patients' short-term and long-term outcomes at four sites, two in Australia and two in the United States. And now we we have a new idea that just as starting, just in the coming weeks, we, we're going to receive funding from the NIH to look at the combination of early exercise with early protein supplementation in the ICU. And we, we hope that this combined nutritional and exercise approach in the ICU may have even better benefits than either of those therapies alone.
0: Okay, so that brings up a few questions in my head, being a rehab physician. Um, one of which, is the equipment highly specialized or different in any way um, from what you would find at an outpatient uh, therapy therapy gym? For instance, is the cycle ergometer any different than the cycle ergometer that you can find you know, at an outpatient PT gym?
1: So the cycle ergometer that we use is a commercially available cycle ergometer. Um, It was specifically modified to be used when patients are in bed. Um, The ergometer, for example, is also used the same cycle ergometer, for example, in dialysis centers. So while patients are are in dialysis for three or four hours, um, they can be offered the opportunity of of cycling as well. So it is commercially available. and it may be slightly different than what might be used in an outpatient study, but it isn't It isn't a specialized device that's only for the ICU. Okay. Um, it was created before the ICU, but then they recognized that there's a very important market of patients in intensive care units, and they just needed to make some adjustments to make it feasible to do while the patient's in a hospital bed, for instance.
0: Okay. So then... What about the human resources, the therapist side of things? Are these therapists that necessarily have to go through some different kind of training on top of their their particular training that they've already gone through as a PT or as an OT? Um, do they have to go through some added certification to understand how to recognize, you know, that things are not so stable in one of these in, in one of these critically ill patients?
1: So. At my hospital at Johns Hopkins, the, we, we do have uh, physical therapists and occupational therapists who may in fact be new grads, but before they can work in the intensive care unit, they go through some in-house orientation, competency training um, that's designed in-house in order to make sure that they have the proper skill set and education and some oversight that they have achieved some competencies before they go and independently treat patients in the ICU. But this really is no different than what we do, for example, with our nurses. Our nurses that work in the ICU, new grads or not new grads, also go through a buddy system and an orientation as well. Um, And I do think that that's critically important. And at, for example, our Johns Hopkins ICU Rehabilitation Conference that's happening, for example, this year, November 2 to 4 in in, uh, 2017, we actually have an entire day dedicated to rehab clinicians that want to understand the basics of critical care. So understanding the basics of mechanical ventilation and physical functional measures and lines and tubes and drains and those sorts of things, and also understanding the basics of ICU rehab and clinical decision making. Um, Not every physical therapist or occupational therapist may have attended something like that, but we do think that it's um, it's important to have some education and some training Much of which may be done in-house and in fact in order to have a larger scope Not everyone can fly to Baltimore, especially from people outside of of the United States Not everybody has time off in November. We've created e-learning modules from our prior conferences the prior conferences were recorded live with video and audio and we've just finished producing e-learning modules that people can then license and not have to come to the conference, they can learn in their home environment as well. And we're doing that specifically to spread out that education, to try to have as many interested rehab people learn about this to improve their practice.
0: Okay. And it would probably make these practitioners more comfortable in those settings than just pulling somebody who's used to working in a particular setting and then bringing them to the ICU and from day one, okay, here you go, it's the patient just like any other patient. Any anybody that walks into the ICU is going to say, "Well, this is not exactly the same as you know an outpatient um, uh, person."
1: Yeah, absolutely. We need everyone that's that's providing rehabilitation services to these patients to have some understanding of the lines and the tubes and the drains and the medications, so that they don't make naive mistakes in the care of the patient. But also what's important is that there has to be very close communication between the ICU doctors and the ICU nurses with the rehab people so that everybody knows what's going on. Um, And the doctors and nurses need to have some understanding of what's safe and what's not safe and, and how we should be performing early rehabilitation and why we should be performing this and and need to cooperate. But I think when that cooperation and communication happens, I think it's incredibly beneficial for patients but it's also incredibly rewarding for the team. This is the chance for our ICU doctors and nurses to have tangible evidence of patients getting better. They can see it with their own eyes. You know, this may be something that's very familiar to rehab professionals, but it's not so familiar to ICU doctors and nurses. And I think everybody finds this a very gratifying, rewarding experience when we do this.
0: So you mentioned, you know, that we need to be able to know what's safe and what's not safe. In your experience thus far, what have you noticed are are there certain things that are big red flags where you say you know what this is this is probably a patient that we shouldn't start mobilizing just yet are there certain things in your mind that this is a stop sign i'm not you know we're not ready to to proceed with therapy
1: yeah i think that there are a, a small number of true absolute contraindications but most things are not absolute contraindications and And I think it's important to focus on those that aren't absolute contraindications first. So, for example, there was a a school of thought where an endotracheal tube would be a reason to not mobilize a patient, meaning a tube that goes from their mouth into their lungs for them to be attached to life support. That's a myth. Patients can be mobilized with a breathing tube.
0: So a patient can have... ...can be attached to a ventilator and can mobilize safely.
1: That's, that's right. Okay. There there are myths that patients that have large intravenouses in veins or arteries in their groin, femoral lines, shouldn't be mobilized. That, again, is a myth. Okay. Um, and that patients can be safely mobilized. I'm never saying all patients can be safely mobilized. Right. I'm never saying that there's no need for clinical judgment. To use the example of, of a, say... Um, a large intravenous in the femoral vein, in the groin, you know, if that's the patient's only intravenous access, and they're on life support medication, and the line's not very secured, and they're very easy to bleed, we need to think very, very carefully about what the consequences would be if there's a problem with that. And so that there needs to be some thinking through that. What if things don't go well? What's, what's going to happen, and how am I going to problem-solve around that? Um, so there does need to be clinical decision-making and communication, but femoral lines are not an absolute contraindication. Um, but there may be other uh, contraindications. I, I think that if we see a patient who without rehab is steadily getting worse. We haven't yet stabilized the patient. Their heart rate may be dropping, their blood pressure may be dropping, their oxygen levels in their blood may be dropping, and we're doing all we can to try to stabilize that patient's vital signs. That's not the time to give them a stress test and add on physical rehabilitation. And usually in those settings, there's so many other people in the room, we couldn't fit an OT or a PT in the room anyways. But I think that's probably one of the biggest common sense things is we need to wait until the patient's physiologically stable. That doesn't mean that we need to wait until they're off of life support. They can still be on moderate levels of life support and still safely receive rehabilitation as long as they're stable and they've got some buffer so that their blood pressure or heart rate changes a little bit, it's not going to be catastrophic.
0: Which is essentially what happens day-to-day anybody in non-critically ill patients, right? I mean, you and I, I mean, my blood pressure at some point today is going to hit 150 systolic, 160, 170 systolic if I go and exercise especially. But by the time I'm asleep, I should be below 120, right? So so i mean this this idea that think that the patient should be completely sedated and you know vitals should be within you know systolic 110 to 130 and diastolic 80 to 95 th- those ideas are maybe not necessarily you know as appropriate for somebody's you know um improvement as as was previously thought that is that correct
1: yeah, yeah there needs to be a lot of of clinical decision making and and sometimes when the occupational physical therapist talk to me, as, as I'm the medical director of our program, and I'm not looking after the patient's 365 days a year, we all take turns, I sometimes say, okay, that requires a conversation with a bedside doctor or nurse or physician assistant or, or nurse practitioner, whomever is there to sort of say, what, what's the risk benefit here and, and where are things going? So the communication is incredibly uh, important to make the, the delivery of early rehabilitation safe.
0: Okay, so as with most things in life, communication, teamwork, bringing everybody in, everybody towards the common goal. And that leads me to another question. Is the common goal just improvements in function? Um, have you seen more than just benefits? In, because I, I'm coming from from a rehab point of view, where our focus is usually quality of life, not necessarily saving somebody from the edge of of disaster, but you know improving their quality of life, improving their functional scores, their FIM scores. Um, have you seen benefits in mortality? Have you seen benefits in other areas other than quality of life? Because I would expect quality of life to improve in somebody that is. Receiving rehabilitation and therapies with the different subspecialists, but um, have you seen other other benefits?
1: Personally, I would not hypothesize that this kind of intervention would affect mortality. Okay. Um, that's not the reason that we're doing it. We're not doing it to save people's lives. We're doing it, as you say, to improve the quality of their life, not the, not the quantity of their life. We have, in the ICU, we've got many other interventions to stop people from dying. This one is to improve the quality of their survivorship. Um, the head bone is connected to the body bone, as I say. So I think that there is synergy when we do things to help patients' body, we often help their mind and their thinking. And as, as their thinking clears, patients are often able to participate in rehabilitation better. And for example, when we use an approach to care where we, we decrease sedation and allow patients to be awake, I think that has many positive effects on their mood, on their anxiety. It helps reduce delirium. Delirium or confused thinking in the ICU may occur in up to 80% of mechanically ventilated patients. So it's very common. And patients often have very frightening false memories when, when they're delirious. So for example, one of the most common memories that a patient may have when they're delirious is of a healthcare provider trying to harm them. They may feel that a healthcare provider was sexually assaulting them, or trying to to physically harm them. And this is often based on them having confused thinking and misinterpreting the stimuli happening around them. And by having people awake, they now know that when a catheter is put into their bladder so they can pee, that that's not sexual assault, that that's somebody putting a catheter into their bladder. Um, They have a much better understanding of what's happening around them And often the ICU is a less scary place when patients have cognition or thinking that's more intact and not clouded by sedation.
0: Okay, okay. Um, You mentioned during your presentation today um, one of the studies that you were involved in and the title of that study was the safety of patient mobilization and rehabilitation in the ICU and it was a systematic review and meta-analysis that that you were part of. And you looked at some pretty, pretty big and impressive numbers, um, one of which uh, that I jotted down was you looked at patients who had received um, skilled therapy sessions in the ICU setting, and of 22,351 sessions, um, there were only 583, which is approximately 2.5%, potential safety events. When you say potential safety events, what was a potential safety event?
1: Yeah, so we, we, we use that term quite, quite specifically. We've defined it very, very liberally. So a potential safety event could be a, a change in heart rate or a change in blood pressure that may completely resolve when the patient's allowed to take a rest break. So we were very, very conservative. We wanted to, to try to demonstrate that, that even if we define it that liberally, that it's, these still aren't very common events. And in fact, in that meta-analysis, we took a more restrictive definition where it was a considered a safety event only if there's a consequence of the event or if the rehab session had to be stopped and not restarted. And that happened in only 0.6% of the 22,000 sessions. And this happened across 38 studies from around the world as part of research studies and as part of regular care. So with proper training and communication, this can be safe.
0: So you're saying that with a liberal definition of something that could be dangerous to a patient, over 97% of those patients did not even have one of those one of those when they were undergoing therapy sessions? Yeah, that's correct. And that with a more stringent definition, over 99% of patients in the ICU that received therapy did not suffer any potentially dangerous
1: event? Absolutely right. And I think those are very good ways to to pose the statistics to say that it's more than 99% did not have any, any type of safety event. So that's
0: pretty impressive, especially considering, you know, the paradigm that we were mentioning at the beginning when we were talking about the paradigm is, the current thinking is, if you're intubated, if you have a femoral line, If you've got some sort of external cardiac device that's keeping you alive, we should keep you resting in bed, and we shouldn't have you moving or moving about or sometimes even awake. We should just have you kind of in a semi-induced coma while we control your organs, essentially. So that kind of thinking is not necessarily... These numbers are showing that that kind of
1: thing is not necessarily accurate. That's right, and I think we also need to reframe the harms that happen from deep sedation and bed rest. We need to recognize that these are not safe ways of caring for people because we result in hospital-acquired delirium or confused thinking. We have hospital-acquired muscle weakness, and these things have long-lasting negative effects on patients. So it's really important to shine a flashlight on the hospital-acquired harms that result from deep sedation. You know, people's intention in doing this approach to care where patients are deeply sedated, is not to harm them. They think that they're helping them. But as soon as we begin to help clinicians understand the association between sedation medications and delirium and the harmful effects of bed rest that's caused by deep sedation and how it is a long-lasting effect, I think that helps people recognize that these aren't safe ways uh, of delivering care as part of usual care. Okay.
0: So kind of shifting gears a little bit, have you been able to figure out Uh, When is the best time to start these interventions in a patient who's admitted to the ICU?
1: So I think that that that's a very important question to the field. I'm not sure that we've got the answer fully finalized based on existing research, but many of us believe that starting earlier is better. And we believe that in part because there's one randomized control trial that specifically compared early versus later occupational and physical therapy. And that randomized trial showed that the group that received OT and PT starting within about one or two days, as compared to waiting about seven days, had better outcomes. Both groups got occupational and physical therapy, and they got the same types of therapy. The only differences were the timing of the starting of it. And that that approach also resonates with other research showing that patients may lose almost 20% of their quadriceps muscle cross-sectional area within about the first 10 days in the ICU. So what we're hoping is that early rehabilitation will decrease some of that muscle loss and make the recovery process easier. That's the, the rationale. Certainly there's room for more research, but most of us believe that early intervention will be best And that's why, for example, in our new randomized trial that we talked about earlier about early exercise and early protein supplementation, we're starting that intervention early. And those are the patients that we're specifically targeting, those where we can get it started early, um, because we think that that's where there will be the most benefit.
0: So you mentioned bringing in occupational therapists, bringing in physical therapists to try to stave off a lot of this muscle loss and atrophy and muscle wasting Um, But then a second ago, you were mentioning also delirium and some of the other negative effects that you get from deep sedation. Um, Do you think that there's the benefit in bringing in speech therapists and psychologists to the bedside as well in the ICU? Uh,
1: I absolutely do believe in that. And in fact, in my medical ICU at Johns Hopkins, we do have a rehab psychologist that specifically sees our patient. And we do have speech language pathology. Speech-language pathology will see patients, when they've got an endotracheal tube, to work on cognition and on communication. We've got iPads in my ICU that are dedicated to my ICU to help facilitate some patients with communication, for instance.
0: Kind of as communication boards type of...
1: That's right. There's okay. many, many available apps around communication with iPads when patients have tracheostomies. Our respiratory therapists, with our speech-language pathologists, are instrumental in offering patients voice through inline speaking valves or so-called talking tracheostomy tubes. Um, so, so they do really play play critical roles in in patients' recovery.
0: So, an interesting a question that um, the the administrators may find a little the hospital administrators may find a little bit more interesting. Um, what have you seen the effect? has been on actual ICU stays, on length of stay, with, with these interventions.
1: Sure. So the, the first randomized controlled trial that I was alluding to a minute ago, done by Bill Schweikard, published in The Lancet, looked at early versus later occupational and physical therapy. They found, for example, a 50% reduction in the duration of delirium and almost a 50% reduction in the duration of mechanical ventilation. And in my own ICU, when we did what's called a before-after comparison, this wasn't a randomized trial, but we implemented this approach to care, and we compared it to what what our our outcomes were like before this quality improvement project, and then again after the quality improvement project had finished, we found that we had a 30% reduction in the length of stay in our ICU across all patients in our ICU when we introduced lighter sedation and early rehabilitation. Um, So, I think there are some signals around early rehabilitation being able to bend the cost curve. And what I mean by that is it's an opportunity to simultaneously improve patient outcomes at a lower cost to the hospital. And I think this is really an excellent opportunity for that. And that's the basis for my hospital investing in early rehabilitation in the intensive care unit is it has benefits both to patient outcomes at what we think is a lower cost to the hospital.
0: So there's benefits for the patient's quality of life. There's benefits psychologically. There's benefits skeletal muscle from a skeletal muscle perspective. Um, there's benefits from a financial perspective. Um, there's obvious benefits for the patient. You know, staying in the ho- in the hospital less. I don't think anybody wants to be admitted to the hospital, let alone stay in the hospital for a prolonged period of time. Um, in an ideal world. Um, is this something that you'd like to be to to observe and just be the standard of care around around the world in all intensive care units?
1: A- absolutely, and we're doing everything we can within our the the grasp of our our group to try to engage, educate, and help other ICUs and rehab clinicians understand, design, and implement uh, this approach to care. And we're doing lots of ways to try to to help with that. I talked about our Johns Hopkins ICU Rehabilitation Conference that's held in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the fall of every year. I've talked about our e-learning modules. I also uh, am part of the Asia Pacific ICU Mobility Network where we're specifically targeting East Asia. There's many ICUs and hospitals there that are very large and advanced that are trying to, to introduce these practices. Um, so we, we have sort of a mentorship and training to try to get many hospitals and, and countries there up and running. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of things that we're doing to try our best to help facilitate that. Social media, you know, on Twitter, we're very active with the Twitter handle at ICU Rehab, all one word. Um, I have a monthly email list that goes out to more than 2,000 people from around the world to keep people up to date on on the latest advances. So there's many, many things that we do.
0: Okay. And I think it's, it's a perfect place for both of our specialties for, you know, critical care physicians and for rehab physicians to kind of unite and bring together, you know, the services that we both offer for patients for better outcomes in general.
1: Exactly. And I need to tease and remind some of our physical medicine rehab residents when we consult them in the ICU and they say, the patient's not yet ready for acute rehab, I have to remind them that they've got a skill set more than just triage. Their job isn't just to decide if a patient's ready for acute rehab or not. There are many, many issues that are pertinent to the field of physical medicine rehabilitation that can be applied even while a patient's in the intensive care environment. And we need help and collaboration to think about, you know, bowel, bladder, skin, muscle, brain, cognition, mood, uh, all of those things that are bread and butter um, areas of expertise of uh, rehab physicians.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Needham. Thank you for coming and speaking with us. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and record this podcast with us so that we can you know, try to spread the word as much as possible. Um, if there's anything else that you'd like to get out before we end the session, please do so.
1: It's been absolutely my pleasure to join you and to to meet many of your colleagues here. And I just encourage everybody to really think about this change an approach to care, and how you can bring this back to your own ICU. This will always take a team effort. One person can't do it alone. We need that communication collaboration between patient, people with rehabilitation training and critical care people. So begin to reach out, create a team, and think about how to organize this in your own hospital. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, sir. I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double-check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates, or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue, we are here to get the wheels spinning we are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.